Hello. Hi. Let's start with the questions I think I wrote here because it's the questions I want to know most of all the answers to that. Yeah, here we are. Uh, can, I, so can, I, can I ask you a question first? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Usually my English is somewhat idiomatic and mm -hmm. American. I can tell that your English is very good, but would you prefer that I, that I not be very idiomatic? Or would you... Do you know what I'm asking? Yeah, I, uh, I certainly know what you're asking. I think that uh, you talk as you talk normally, and if I have some feelings that I can misunderstand something, then I will ask for some, uh, like... To, for of you to be more specific or more simple okay. or something like it. Okay, is it okay? Good. Yes, as long as you feel comfortable doing that, that's fine. Well, I think if I'm <laughs> reading your books, I think I, in general, will be able to understand what that's, that's you probably say. true. My wife is also laughing at me from the other room, so I'm going <laughs> here. Okay. Greetings okay. to your wife. Now she's making comments. Mm -hmm. All right. Now she's laughing. All <laughs> right. Okay, we can start. Okay, according to some comments on Infinite Jest, we live in the year of the uh, Whisper Quiet Maytag Dishmaster. Now we don't have any organization of North American nations, neither years are subsidized. But anyways, uh, many people feel, and uh, me in particular, I feel it too, that society now is more and more consumer-oriented. Do you uh, share this feeling? Do you think it's true too? What for you does the term consumer-oriented mean? It means for me that all that surrounds me uh, tries to sell me something. Yeah. It's uh, that all the, uh, not all, of course not all the values, but uh, many of the values of the society there in the United States, as I can uh, judge by, uh, as I can guess by uh, films or books or TV programs, yeah. or here in Europe, uh, like many of the values directed to buy something. So you're asking me about kind of American society, not all of... Uh, do you think that we live in uh, consumerism age, or it's uh, just a media saying that doesn't have any uh, real sense for you? Well, this question, as you know, is very complicated. I can give answers that are, that are somewhat simple, and I can really talk only about America because it's, it's really the only society that I know. Um, at least, I mean... America, as everybody knows, is a country of many contradictions. And a big contradiction for a long time has been between a very aggressive form of capitalism and consumerism against what might be called a kind of, um, let's see, moral or, or civic impulse that in America for many years regarded I mean, everybody knew that business was business and people needed to make money, but people were, were also a little bit embarrassed or ashamed of that. It was regarded as somewhat crass. And some of that contradiction comes out of England and old conflicts between the bourgeoisie and the nobility. Where I think you and I agree is that sometime, I'm not sure whether it was the 1990s or the 1980s in America, half of that conflict really sort of disappeared um, and there's now a celebration commercialism and consumerism and marketing that is not really balanced by any kind of let's see shame or embarrassment or reticence or any sense that that in fact consumerism and commercialism were really only a very small part of human life i think in many people's daily lives those daily lives probably aren't completely consumer-driven here in America, but they're certainly much more so 
they were 20 or 30 years ago. And, you know, where it gets interesting and complicated is some of the diagnoses of, of what happened and, and what's changed and, and what it augurs for the future. But that's a much more complicated issue. I do think this trend is uh, somehow... Can I just ask you, was that anything like the sort of answer you're looking for? Well, I'm sort of uh, looking for answers that represent your opinion on these matters. Okay, I'm not asking for, like, if it's your opinion, uh, that's what I'm looking for. That's it. No, but, but part of it is that I'm concerned. I've, I've read these questions. They're very good uh -huh. questions. I just don't know that I could say anything that isn't so obvious that that you or your listeners wouldn't, wouldn't already know what it is. You're aware that, that here in America, I mean, whole books are written about the, the sort of consumerism of modern society mm -hmm. and the effect of media and advertising and how the American character has changed, and it's, it's extremely complicated. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think it's a natural uh, trend for the society? It will stop at some moment. Do you think there is something, well, I don't know, something dangerous in it? Like, in, in your book, Infinite Jest, I mean, it doesn't seem like uh, your view of it is very positive of this uh, subsidized years and all this great concavity and all this stuff. Well, the, the subsidized years is just kind of a natural... Um, you know, it's meant to be a joke, but here in America, any large sporting event is now called the, you know, Acme Corporation Super Bowl or something like it's that. It's same it's, here. Part of the progression here is that is that corporations have very smart, hardworking people doing marketing and advertising, and that in American culture, advertisers have figured out have, and determined all kinds of ways to get their advertising across that nobody would even have imagined in the 1960s or the 1970s. And um, it's that very profusion, marketing and media and message and selling, that I think gives you and me and many people the sense that we're awash in this kind of consumerist world. Where it's going, I'm not entirely sure. In America, and I, I imagine large parts of Western Europe, there's a certain problem, which is that corporations have gotten more and more power, both culturally and politically. Here in America, it now takes large amounts of money to run for various kinds of democratic office. Corporations have a great deal more money than private citizens. Corporations make these donations that then result in, in laws that favor corporations even more, and you get a sort of a cycle. I don't know that I'm totally pessimistic, because I don't... The problem here it seems to me, is that at least since World War II, America has become more and more a, a corporate society, that, that we've turned more and more political and cultural life over to corporations. And corporations are very strange. They're composed of people. Legally, they, ha they have the legal status of a person, but they don't have a conscience or a soul the way people do. What corporations really are are machines for making money, enormous, sophisticated machines. Given the fact that corporations have that one interest and that human beings, those of us who live here in America, have all sorts of different interests of which making money and being financially comfortable is only one, you end up with this increasing distortion of American values where everything becomes about money and selling and buying and display when in fact people's domestic lives and interior lives 
require a great deal more than that for anything like happiness or wholeness. So in that sense, as corporations become more and more powerful, um, one could probably see a trend that isn't a happy trend. On the other hand, where it gets complicated is American politics, and we've reached a point with the current president and the current administration where corporations have so much influence and so much control and are doing so much damage that's obvious to everybody that there may be what's known in English as a backlash. Do you know the term backlash? Mm -hmm. A kind of spasmodic reaction. Uh You know, uh, the next 10 years here in America are going to be very interesting probably for the whole world to watch. Mm, Will it be interesting, like, optimistically saying, or more interesting, like, uh, watching a volcano? In watching what? A volcano. Oh, interesting. Well, those are the two possibilities. Either American voters will figure out that there need to be some counterbalances to corporate and capitalist forces, and that that balance can be achieved through the political process, or you or we may very uh, we may very well end up here with a form of fascism. Many people in America throw the term fascism around, particularly for Middle Eastern terrorists. But in fact, as I'm sure you know, what fascism really is is mm-hmm. a close alliance between a unitary executive in the state and <laughs> large corporations in the state, and. We could be entering a period much like, you know, the period Russia went through much of the 20th century with a great deal of repression and hollowness and artificiality of the culture because everything in the culture is directed toward the interests of corporations rather than the citizens. I get something out of this, too. How do you think it's going to play out? Will it be a volcano? Um, in America, some... in America, I don't know. I'm rather optimistic about it because I think America is a good, balanced country and they have a long tradition of changing governments. I'm thinking now more of Russia because we have a quite a great situation too with elections about the same time as yours. Yeah. And about Russia, I really think it will be something more like a volcano. So I cannot... Because, can you describe the characteristics of the explosion or the volcano? How does Putin and his administration figure into this? Mm, well, I think they will not be able to find... Uh, well, I don't know. Are you aware of Russian political situation now? That uh, everybody now is talking about Putin, uh, some theoretical Putin protege that will be the next president. Yes. And I think there will be such a thin balance of power there inside Putin administrations that they will not be able to choose one protege and uh, there will be a big quarrel inside the administration after Putin go and I can expect just anything of the situation. Not even after, but even before the president elections. Yes. Maybe well, even I'm something like riots. I don't know. I don't know whether we're close to that here. One thing about America is that is that America is so comfortable and so prosperous that the economy would have to get really, really bad or there would have to be outrageous, outrageous violations of civil liberties before I think there was actual, much actual rioting in the streets. But our, the situations are strangely similar, it seems to me, other than that. Mm-hmm. Seems to me, too, that we somehow follow in your trends and sometimes even, like, overwhelming it. Our well, or, or, doing we, it. or we follow in yours. <laughs> it's, not, it's not always clear which way the arrows go. 
back to uh, art and uh, mass media, one popular uh, modern Russian writer said that the main character of all the pop culture now is black briefcase with money, with million dollars. And uh, popular say films... That, say, say that again more slowly. There is a Russian writer, uh, very popular in, in Russia. His name is uh, Viktor Pilevin. I've heard of Viktor Pilevin, yeah. Uh -huh. And uh, in one of his books he said that uh, the main character of all the modern uh, pop cinema and pop literature and all the pop culture, the main character there is a black briefcase with money, with million dollars and uh, that uh, popular culture is following not adventures of heroes, of nominal heroes of the books or movies, but it follows the way of this uh, briefcase with money. And all these uh, characters are really uh, more like statists, like, uh, I, I forgot the uh, English word, but they are just like supporting characters to this briefcase. Uh -huh. So, do you think that modern pop culture is preoccupied with the money reward for the hero? Everything I've heard about Victor Pelevin is very smart and very astute, and I think his image here is one reason it's so funny is that it's somewhat accurate. At least here in America, we're in a time that's very, very cynical, so that when you have a piece of pop culture that has a, a very virtuous person or a hero, people no longer... People see, see those qualities much more as presentations by someone who's trying to get something, whether money or approval, than true human virtue or true qualities. It's one consequence of what American scholars call the postmodern era, is that everyone's seen so many performances that American viewers and American readers, we simply assume now that everything is a performance, and it's strategic and it's tactical. It's probably true that in this period of cynicism, the one thing that people truly believe in and truly see as having value are things like money, or particularly found money that people are willing to, you know, fight and die for. It's a very sad situation, and I, I think the chances are that nations go through periods of great idealism and great cynicism, and that America and Western Europe, at least Western Europe right now, are periods of, of great cynicism. You can't imagine what cynicism we have in Russia. Not Certainly not less cynicism than in Western Europe. Yes, what's strange is, at least as an amateur and someone who doesn't know that much about Russia, is that so much of Russian cynicism is due to the terrible things that the government did to civilians for so many years and that now now that at least in some ways commercialism and capitalism has been unleashed yeah, back, um, backlash as you said yeah something like a backlash what's strange to watch is to see how closely this backlash or explosion in places like russia mirror developments in america that have really been kind of slow and progressive over much of the 20th century with just capitalist and commercialist and consumerist values getting more and more pronounced and less and less balanced by values that um, people simply don't really believe in anymore. Or no, that's too simple. It's not that people don't believe in them anymore. It's that they believe that no one else around them believes in them and that it's all simply a display or a sales technique. And so everyone is so afraid of being taken advantage of that feel they have to be extremely cynical 
and calculating all the time. It's one reason it's a very kind of sad, depressed, angry time in America right now. Certainly the worst I can remember. Is there any way out of it? Can you see any developments, of maybe minor developments, that uh, could lead to some good result in future? Well, speaking totally as an amateur and not, you know, not any kind of government expert, I would say sure, at least in America, there's been a highly artificial situation for very many years that the American standard of living, the American degree of consumption of resources and exploitation of other countries has been extraordinary. America is now starting to face certain economic realities that we've been shielded from for many years. The price of the price of gasoline um, is slowly becoming closer to what it is in the rest of the world. The fact, the awareness that the entire Earth's climate is affected by all nations and that the United States, as far and away the biggest carbon producer, um, bears some special responsibility for possible environmental collapse later. Americans are slowly waking up out of a kind of dream of special exemption and special privilege um, in the world. And this could, to use your term, this could result in some kind of volcano and America becoming some kind of nightmarish, nightmarish imperial force trying to take resources from other countries forcibly. Or it could result, as I think it does in many countries in cycles, in a kind of slow awakening to the fact that having and consuming and exhausting resources is actually not not a very good set of values <laughs> for living, and that America has got, once again, to find a way to live in concert with other countries. Um, I mean, they, there could be actually, there could be a real renaissance of the United Nations Um, not as an idealistic enterprise, but as many of the leading nations realizing that we all have to work together and share and compromise or else the entire planet is in very big trouble. So which way it will go, I don't know. It's, it's one reason it's a very frightening time in America, particularly with the people who are in power right now. It's Many of us are in the position of being more afraid of our own country and our own government than we are of any you know, supposed enemy somewhere else. Mm -hmm. You know, for someone like me who grew up in the 60s in the height of the Cold War and our consciousness was formed by we are the good guys and there's this one great looming dark enemy and that's the Soviet Union, this is all a very new, the idea of waking up to the fact that in today's world very possibly we are the villain, we are the dark force, to begin to see ourselves a little bit through the eyes of people in other countries You can imagine how difficult that is mm -hmm. for Americans to do. Nevertheless, with a lot of the people I know, it's very slowly starting to happen. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Do, they, do these answers make sense? I yeah, absolutely. These are, obviously, you will edit these way down, but uh, the, I'm afraid they're kind of rambling. No, they absolutely make sense. Well, I'm going back to my list. Can we tell art from entertainment? Can we tell, uh, well, is something, uh, some good program on TV... Well, some with uh, just entertainment values. Can we call it an art if it's uh, very good? It's like yours, entertainment. Is it art or is it just an entertainment? Well, Osap, you're aware that, again, you're asking me one of the basic questions of what's called in English aesthetics. Mm -hmm. The question of what is art, I mean, your own Tolstoy wrote an entire book about this. 
Um, this is a very, very complicated question. Personally, I believe that there's a, there's a difference between art and entertainment, but that, that it's not a sharp, dark line dividing the two. It's more like, do you know what the word continuum is? Mm-hmm. A bunch of graduals. Yeah, I'm a, a mathematician by trade, by education. Oh, okay. So we have what, what's really much more of a sort of continuity or continuum issue than we do any kind of strict demarcation. One reason why the question's really interesting now is that America, uh, American culture has gotten very, very good at producing entertainment. Vivid, spectacular, engrossing, colorful, sophisticated entertainment. And many American scholars and, and estheticians wonder how serious art will survive in a culture that's become more and more about entertainment and amusement and escape and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And this the entertainment in your book, do you consider it art or the, the, the movie? movie? The movie, yes. Yeah, the movie in that book is probably Victor Pelevin's equivalent of the, <laughs> of the black suitcase with the money in it. <laughs> probably, I did that book a long time ago. I think I think my guess is that the really really effective entertainment is usually commercial, meaning it wants its primary goal is to get the audience to spend money to see it. There is, in basic economics, the phenomenon of elasticity of demand, and what you want is inelasticity of demand, where um, the ideal piece of entertainment would be something that people would want to see over and over and over again and pay for each time. The analogy for me is much more something like narcotics Mm -hmm. um, or addictive drugs than it is any kind of art. But probably the movie in that book is meant to be a sort of parody-like exaggeration of entertainment, the same way that subsidized time is kind of a parody of corporate domination of culture. Yes, I understand it, but is it art nevertheless? Well, um, here's the problem. It is, you and I could sit down with a pot of coffee and, a, and many cigarettes, and we could have a whole argument about this. The problem is that is that any definition one gives of art or any way that one tries in a sentence or two to, to distinguish art from entertainment can be blown full of holes by counterexamples, right? My belief is, I have two very simplistic beliefs. One is that the basic defining feature of, of an entertainment is that it provides some sort of relief or escape from real human life and the way that we all sort of feel inside all the time in our real lives, whereas art provokes more of an engagement or confrontation with that, probably. It's one reason why art is requires more work, both intellectually and sort of emotionally, to absorb art than it does entertainment. So that, that, that for me is one difference. The other is that entertainment's primary goals, I usually think in America, are primary, primarily economic, that they're primarily commercial objects and the true agenda is to get the consumer to spend money on them whereas art including bad art (laughs) Mm -hmm. usually has much more complicated agendas that have to do at least partly with trying to give some sort of gift or have some kind of meaningful communication with the audience Um, not that it necessarily succeeds or isn't sometimes very bad but at least deep down in its agenda. 
So those are my two, I, I thought about this when I read your email, those are my two ways sort of in my stomach or intuitively to distinguish the two. But of course, either of us could think of a hundred counterexamples that would make those differences very difficult to maintain in an argument. Mm-hmm. For instance, you brought up the Potemkin, mm-hmm. which is fairly, I mean, I don't know that it's an entertainment in a commercial sense, but it's fairly unabashed propaganda. Yeah, um, And yet, uh, at least from the perspective of 21st century American movie fan, when I watch it, I watch it primarily uh, as a piece of art, um, and I'm moved by it as a piece of art. Some of it has to do, obviously, with the cultural context in which you absorb something. I mean, Borges... Russians are familiar with the work of Borges? Yeah, we do. His yeah. short story, mm-hmm. Pierre Menard, author of The Quixote, is a fantastic... Yeah, it's great. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, I, I mean, it's that, that's, that's where it gets even more complicated, is because then you have to start talking about the political and cultural context of the production and, and also the receipt of the piece of art or entertainment. They can obviously change over time, at which point the whole thing begins just sort of giving you a headache. And um, can uh, there exist a pure art without any propaganda or commercial or, well, basically without propaganda or commercial point, without propaganda or commercial value? What do you think? Well, if simplified very, very gravely, then I think not. I think it cannot exist without any political or commercial sense. I'm suspicious of the word of the word pure. It's, it's mm-hmm. an extremely, it's a very, very high standard to attach to a word like art, given that the, the basic situation is a continuum. But let me give you an example. My wife is fantastic artist and painter, but she doesn't attempt to sell her work for a great deal of money. She hasn't made any attempt to get a lot of galleries or to get museums to buy her work. Often, what she gets most excited about is making, I mean, she's had, she's had shows, and she can sell stuff when she wants to, but most, mainly she makes them as gifts for people. It's very interesting for me to watch her work, because I know that one reason she doesn't want to try for a lot of conventional success, um, galleries, there's a whole art world in America, right, where you start you develop a name and a reputation and then your art becomes more and more valuable and you can end up very wealthy. She's afraid of that whole kind of process because she believes it will take something out of, out of the art that will make it less fun for her to do. And for her, it's kind of, um, it's the most important thing in her life. She is, for me, I've only been married two years, watching her work and then and then going into the garage where I work and trying to do my work and trying not to think about, oh, what will this reviewer from the New York Times say? Or, oh, what if this runs in a magazine and everyone hates it and they write in? And to find myself preoccupied and distracted by all kinds of, of what are really petty and immature and vain <laughs> distractions is uh, very educational. It may be that the only way in America to produce pure art, it would be to remove oneself from the public sphere and produce that art only as gifts where there's no money involved and there's no attempt at publicity or publication involved. 
the problem is that once you, if everyone does that, then there is no public arts mm-hmm. here. <laughs> so it all becomes really a paradox that I've spent a lot of the last year thinking about, and I, I don't have an answer to it. I mean, Tolstoy believed that pure art had exactly one agenda, and that was to advance the cause of Christian brotherhood mm-hmm. between human beings. Uh, that's propaganda to advance uh, brotherly love. It's propaganda as well. Well, although, for me, Tolstoy's idea what Christian brotherhood was was mm-hmm. not any kind of dogmatic church. But the, the Tolstoy's vision of what Christianity was is pure and good enough that, for me, it does not have the smack of propaganda. However, it does seem to me to be wildly idealistic and a standard, a standard so high that very, very few pieces of art other than something like, you know, the death of Ivan Ilyich could, uh, could meet that standard. Um, there's good, nourishing, fascinating art for me that is far less pure than that. Though it would be very difficult to define it in a rigorous way that you couldn't then, <laughs> you know, punch full of holes with counterexamples. What this, you, really, this is not like American radio shows. Most of the questions you're asking me are philosophical. Um, because I'm interested in uh, your oh, opinion on this. It's fine. It's just that, like you, my educational background is in mathematics and philosophy, and one, it's difficult to give one's opinion in, in a few sentences without being aware that um, as a philosophical view or as anything... God forbid, is anything susceptible to, like, deductive proof or ap- mm-hmm. apodictic proof, these are pathetic. I, I can think of counterexamples even as I'm saying these things. It's usually the same with me. Uh, but the next question I wanted to ask you is uh, just about this. It's about objectivity, and it's, well, it, uh, the first it will be not the question I wrote you, but another one. A friend of mine who is Czech movie director, Basically, he hates objectivity, and he says that uh, when people trying to be objective with uh, when movie director trying to show both sides and to show like objectivity, like truth, uh, then viewer says, like your your normal viewer, common man, he says that well, you can see there is no truth in this world. Everything is relative and. Uh, there is no, like, not a single point of view, but many of them, and every one of them is of the same value, so we cannot do anything. Let's just go and drink some beer, because we cannot do anything else. And I myself, I don't know what to think about it. I don't have some strong opinion on that, but do you think that uh, objectivity is uh, enemy of any action, of any heroism, of any progress? That objectivity is it's an enemy of prog- uh, enemy of action because if uh, this is true and uh, other thing is true right. then uh, there is no truth and there is nothing to go to there is nothing to reach to well what you're asking about is what's called in America relativism which mm-hmm. yes. is one of the big battles that's going on right now is people on the right wing you know republicans and christians believe that intellectuals are much too relativistic because we spend too much time saying, well, but on the other hand, you know, see it from their point of view, or well, and that at a certain point, you're right, this becomes, this becomes paralyzing. What your friend, the director, seems to me to be espousing is 
exactly the vision of relativism that right-wingers in America direct toward left-wingers, which is that it's relativism that ends up in a kind of nihilism, right? That there is no absolute truth. There is no absolute good. There are no moral or ethical absolutes. Everything is relative. Therefore, you know, screw it. Let's go, you know, let's go do drugs or let's go mm-hmm. have sex with whoever we want or kill whoever we want. And, uh, it's like Dostoevsky said that if there is no God, then everything is permitted. Now, this is here in the States, This is another feature of what's called the postmodern condition, where, um, and I'm sure you know all this, the post-structural critics have really been able to blast to smithereens any idea of objectivity in, well, pretty much any discipline you want to call it, uh, quality in art, ethics, uh, political rectitude. Um, again, keep in mind that America, when I was a child, um, seems now incredibly naive that we the United States were the good people and we were bringing democracy and prosperity and freedom to nations whereas the bad evil imperial Soviet Union was attempting simply to absorb absorb these satellites into its totalitarian web as we got older as I got older and entered college and began to know more about the American history that isn't in the textbooks It became for me obviously much more complicated and it's easy to see many many times in history when America and any nation acts in a way that's palpably evil and it does it ends up being morally very confusing my personal opinion Ostop is that the great challenge for those of us who want to be decent human beings and citizens in America is how to be flexible and sophisticated enough to realize that there probably is no objectivity with a capital O, that there probably is no absolute right in all situations handed down from God on a stone tablet, to realize that on one hand, but on the other hand to realize that it is our job as responsible, decent, spiritual human beings to arrive at sets of principles to guide our conduct in order to keep us from hurting ourselves and other people. It's probably the remedy that I see for it is some very, very mild form of, of Camus-like existential engagement. But you can see, uh, the average probably Russian person reading about America can see the terrible way that this conflict is playing out because the backlash against the rel- kind of relativism your director friend just espoused here in America is very, very frightening, where abortion, evil, we must outlaw it in all situations. Mm-hmm. Middle Eastern terrorists, we must torture them. They have no rights. They are not human beings, right? Um, oil, we have a right to cheap oil. Why? Because we're, de- we're, we're the force of democracy and light. I, it all becomes self-serving bullshit so quickly that anybody who's watching it can see the, the sort of evil and delusion in it. This is the danger here in America, is that, is that on one side things, things became very relativistic, and now the backlash is really much more like, you know, Sharia and, and Islamic totalitarianism than it is like recognizable American democracy. And these two forces are, are playing out in America right now. I don't believe your friend sincerely believes that it, it, it's a very effective argumentative device because it's hard to refute easily 
But if I really, if I really, really, really believed that, then I think I, then I think I would be so empty and full of despair inside that I probably wouldn't want to go on living. It's uh, on his side. It was um, argument for his right to express his. Uh, he uh, makes mostly documentaries, and uh, he says that he has a right to, in these documentaries, express his own position, not just like all positions, but to express what he thinks. Oh well, then he is. Then in fact, that's really probably true. The trick, at least here in America, where we're brought up worshiping this kind of democratic diversity and tolerance, mm -hmm. is I have certain political beliefs that I believe in very strongly, but I'm required to allow you to have your beliefs and espouse and fight for your beliefs as strongly as I believe in mine, which all sounds very nice, but it's actually very, very difficult to do, mm -hmm. to do in practice. And what's scary in America right now is is that more and more of the media is being taken over by right-wing interests who are not at all interested in respecting or giving equal time um, to the other side. So now that you've explained, I, I can understand what your friend is saying, although you know that as you and he are sitting around and you're drinking you know, beer or mm -hmm. whatever, the standards he brings to bear on his own documentary what makes a certain sequence or set of edits good, you can end up forcing him to admit that he has a set of half a dozen or a dozen core values that deep down he's going to feel that just about everybody shares, I think. Well, I, I, think so. I think deep down we all still sort mm -hmm. of believe in a kind of objectivity, um, even though it's not at all fashionable um, to talk about it. Mm -hmm. That's true. That's true. I think so. But, uh, well, to these questions that I wrote here, it seems to me, and it's uh, now it's my own opinion, that objectivity in modern journalism and mass media, it's objectivity on the side of the uh, powerful. Because if uh, we uh, express uh, some point of view that is shared between, like, most of the... Of the sure. Well, no, not, not saying uh, most of the population, but most of the media, yeah. most of the journalists, then we can just express it and uh, just ignore any other points of view and right. if we share some uh, if we tell about some minor point of view we absolutely must to say that it's a minor point of view and there is a bigger point of view so it's uh, always on the side in this sense only but uh, mm -hmm. you and i have no disagreements about this again this is a kind of this is part of the post-structural or post-modern awakening part of what's good about it at least here in America, we had this sort of naive view of objectivity, that it was some objective truth, when in fact, what it was, was that for, for many years, the country was so complacent and so in basic agreement that when the news came on and the news was presented in a certain way, it seemed objective just because it's, you know, we all, none of us in the mainstream had any substantive disagreements with it. Now, of course, the battle's really joined here in America because in, in essence, you have a right-wing You have a right-wing media and a left-wing media, and then a, what's supposed to be a mainstream media that's very confused and isn't sure how to position itself. And it makes for a lot of chaos and confusion right now. But if you're right, which I think you are, the end result of this will be good because this idea that there's any kind of objective, particularly in politics, any kind of objective statement of facts, you and I both know it's always a matter of, in news, what 
clips of film one chose to broadcast versus cut out. Mm-hmm. When you run, when you air this exchange on the radio show, you will have made thousands of decisions about what to leave in, what to cut out, what to mm-hmm. what to translate, how to translate it, and your basic attempt will be fair. But what will end up on the show will be much more a reflection of Ostop than it will of David. It's simply mm-hmm. inevitable. Mm-hmm. And it's part of the unspoken agreement that I acquiesce to when I agree to talk with you this way, you know, on the mm-hmm. telephone. It's, it's inevitable. Nevertheless, we, in an attempt to be decent and minimally fair, owe one another some felt obligation to what seems like the truth or seems like fairness, even though those of us who are educated no longer really believe that it's floating out there objectively like some kind of platonic ideal. It's all very tricky. I'm sure you agree. I mean, you must go through this. Every time you edit and translate stuff, you must go through this. Mm -hmm. You know, are you distorting here? You have to cut this by 90%. How can you cut it so that you're not totally distorting it, right? It's got to drive you crazy. Yeah. Unless you're just a bad guy, and then you can cut it <laughs> however you want to make it say whatever you, you right? You and I both know this. I've I've done pieces of journalism. It's mm-hmm. very very tricky. I'll uh, accept we're guided, accept we're guided mm-hmm. by some weird sense of fairness. Otherwise, mm-hmm. we know that that we're not doing journalism. We're we're basically just doing propaganda and cutting and chopping, you know, quotations to fit. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, it's all, again, it's all just a continuum as far as I can see. Well, I hopefully and happily I enjoy some degree of creative freedom because I'm not an employee but a freelance. Oh, sure. But, but, of, course but, uh, but of course, in basic things, you are absolutely right. That, that's one level of freedom, not being an employee, but how free are we from our own prejudices no, absolutely and not solutions? Free. I, absolutely I notice not every free. day something that I've taken for granted that turns out actually not mm-hmm. true. It's, um, it's a great privilege to live, you know, however bad things are in America right now, there's room to walk around and really realize how full of shit I am of the time about the things that I'm really confident of, and it's, it's really quite a privilege to get to walk around and realize that. I think in a lot of times in world history, in a lot of countries and cultures, there just isn't an opportunity to realize how wrong I am most of the time. Mm-hmm. Now let's talk about good times and bad times. This question about, uh, we are basically, uh, it's a common belief, uh, it goes without saying that we have some moral progress and some social progress and political progress, but looking at 20th century, it uh, seems that it uh, was the most cruel century of all of them. All this mass killings, all this totalitarianism, all this everything that happened uh, between 1914 and let's say 1970s, something like that. And uh, till now we create uh, concentration camps for uh, animals, where animals live only to be killed. And it's a whole purpose of their life and it's whole structure of their life. So do you believe in uh, any social progress at all? Any moral progress? Or maybe you would disagree with me and you don't think that uh, the picture is uh, so deemed so bad? Well, I think, again, if we were sitting with coffee and cigarettes, we'd end up agreeing that this, well, the, whole, the whole question is very, very complicated. It is certainly true that as technology has progressed and economic mechanisms have progressed, it is increasingly possible to perpetrate terror.
terrible, terrible cruelties on other human beings and on animals. You and I, I think, agree that one of the great unspoken horrors of modern capitalism is the phenomenon of what's known as factory farming, which here in America, for economic reasons, um, because it's cheapest, um, animals are raised in such large numbers, in such close captivity, in such miserable conditions, they're made that if you assume that they have nervous systems and are capable of suffering, it is the great horror um, of America right now, I think. It's not a view that most Americans are very interested in. Most Americans believe that there's a moral hierarchy and the needs of people come first. So I personally believe that uh, needs of human come first, but it's a matter of degree too, because nevertheless, if, even if uh, needs of human come first, then needs of animals should be at least considered. You know, I absolutely agree, and it, it, for me, I, I don't know whether, I've, got, I've had many arguments with friends about this. It seems to me that there's no better example of why corporate interests and economic logic need to be balanced with laws and uh, restrictions on corporate behavior than on the fact not only that so many animals are, are killed, but that are made to live lives that uh, where none of their instincts get to be acted out, where every waking moment of their lives is suffering and torture, also that meat can be produced for, you know, 50 cents less per pound. Um, to me, it's a monstrosity. On the other hand, your questions are very good at penetrating to what are the great sort of battles and conflicts in America right now. At least in America, one of the things that drives us crazy in America is our professed ideal to try to be fair to everyone. Uh, to try not to exclude or discriminate. And in some ways, America has made progress in realizing as a culture, for instance, how terribly black Americans uh, have been treated, how unfairly women have been treated, how handicapped people have been discriminated against by things as simple as staircases that wheelchairs can't get up. What you see in America right now, though, is yet another backlash. It's so expensive and so difficult to try to be fair to everybody, and it ends up with so much litigation and so many people howling for their rights that many on the right wing and many in business simply want to throw up their hands and say, fuck the whole thing, and let's just go back to the state of nature and war of all against all, and I am stronger, therefore too bad for you. This all gets really tricky. My personal belief is that because technology and economic logic has gotten so sophisticated, cruelties can be perpetrated now that are, would have been unimaginable two or three hundred years ago. Therefore, we're under more of a moral obligation to try very, very, very hard to develop compassion and mercy and empathy But uh, do you think... Which means mm -hmm. these are very bad times in America because the American electorate is simply not interested, for the most part, in, in much of this right now. Um, uh, but do you think, uh, well, not about America, but in general, in philosophical sense, uh, do human beings, uh, do they uh, become better in moral sense, or do they uh, get better social structure 
Well, uh, there is no doubt about technological progress, but is there any uh, progress besides technological? What do you believe? That there's, is there any kind of moral evolution? Uh, Non-evolution, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. Um, what do you think? Mm, I don't know. I don't know. You could make an argument that in some ways, particularly since World War II, we have realized... I mean, you know, once nuclear weapons were developed, we could have a whole conversation about the Cold War and the argument that, in fact, the invention of these unbelievably destructive weapons actually kept Russia and the United States from going to war. That's, uh, that's the point I'm uh, really believing, uh, because uh, did you read Conrad Lawrence about aggression? I'm sorry, did I read what? Uh, uh, there is a, a German uh, and later, I think, American mythologist, Conrad Lawrence, and he has a book about aggression, and uh, he uh, traces it from as a very, the simplest species uh, to humans. And he tries to show there that uh, the more weapons and the more dangerous weapons uh, species have, the more elaborated uh, ritual forgetting peace they do have. If they have weapons to kill each other, then they have to evolve some, to de develop some uh, rituals, some instincts to prevent the killings. Well, this is not a book I'm familiar with. You and I would probably agree with him that we certainly have ration, more rational motivation to develop those things. Mm -hmm. Then you get into, though, whether human beings are fundamentally rational and moral or whether they're simply, whether what human beings are are animals who mm -hmm. um, are essentially predators and have found more and more sophisticated ways to... Uh, it's not. Um, it, uh, sorry, uh, it's not about uh, predators. It's about uh, aggression inside uh, its own uh, kind, to its own kind. Uh -huh. It's aggression between wolves, wolves, and between rats, rat to rat, wolf to wolf, yeah. human to human. Um, it seems to me, again, we're we're into a more philosophical mm -hmm. thing. His argument is actually neither provable nor refutable until there's some kind of. It may be that on a strictly evolutionary model, there will have to be two or three nuclear holocausts before people realize that, um, that aggression is simply so costly that those who survive um, will end up establishing some kind of, what, utopia or some kind of <laughs> quantum moral leap. It seems to me that all, all, his argument, all his argument is sound about is that certainly the quality of the weapons um, and the destructiveness of the weapons increases the rational motivation to cooperate rather than aggress, whether there's been actual any real progress. See, one of the things that's tricky here is that given the media, we now have access to so many more acts of cruelty and horror than we did, say, 100 years ago. It's not clear to me whether the sorts of things that are going on in the Middle East or in the Sudan or, uh, you know, in Chechnya or in Iraq are newly horrible, or whether it was simply that if I lived in 1850 and read a newspaper once a week, I simply, they didn't intrude on my consciousness the way they do now. I think as a layman, I simply don't have an informed opinion about whether, whether there's any kind of moral evolution in people. It's probably a matter of so many variables, and it so depends on what kind of model you want to use to measure 
that it's irresolvable. Um, I agree that it's a fascinating question. I don't know what I could say to you. I don't think I even have an opinion on it. I just have a whole bunch of different fears. Oh, same here. And uh, first I want to ask about this legal system, about this uh, Chinese guy who, go, who went to hell to get some souls to witness uh, against his enemies. And yeah, I, I read that question too. That's a funny little... That's a funny little vignette. Uh, what do you think that um, all this system when uh, everybody... Uh, well, it's like in your story about philosophy and the mirror of nature, uh, where this big knot of uh, legal issues of processes of Zeus, that uh, just one of them uh, just leads to another one. And uh, do you think it's a dangerous thing for society? That um, society maybe stops uh, development again. Again, maybe it's uh, dangerous for progress. For well, you see it. I, I mean, I think a lot of nations know what a terrible mess American healthcare is in. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons American healthcare is such a mess is that it's so expensive. And one reason it's so expensive is that doctors have to pay for malpractice insurance because they're constantly getting sued, and malpractice insurance is so expensive that a lot of doc, you know, and it goes around and around and around. You know. Any eighth grader could trace out the problem. Here in America, we live in a culture where people, where we assume people have rights and don't get to exploit each other, and we have a system of laws. Therefore, it's appeal to civil law by which one tries to get compensated for things that are unfair, and it all sounds really good. It's much better than if I think you have damage me in some way, my picking up a gun and going over to your house and shooting you or one of your loved ones, right? I mean, it's an improvement over that, but it quickly becomes absurd, the amount of litigation. Again, you know, again, though, you, you focused on one of the big conflicts in America right now. Many on the right, many on the right and many corporations want what's called tort reform. Do you know what that term means? I know what, uh, well, I, I can understand what it means, but I don't know what do they want. Tort reform basically means they want it, corporations want it to be much more difficult to sue. Mm -hmm. And they want damages, the amount of money that's awarded in lawsuits, to be very strictly limited by law. The reason they it's want like that... like in France, I think, they have about the same system now. Yeah, uh, although in France they ha also have many more legal checks on corporations than we do here. Mm -hmm. it, it all gets very tricky. Tort reform sounds really great until you realize that however ridiculous that system is, it's one of the very few defenses an ordinary citizen has against a corporation. Say, let's say, let's, since we were talking about farming, let's say you don't bother to make sure that your meat is hygienic and you kill one of my children because the meat you sold me has E. coli in it. A lawsuit is one of the very few ways that I can hurt your company badly enough so that it becomes actually in the corporation's interests to maintain high health standards in its meat. Because if it doesn't, it will just get sued so badly that it will be bankrupt. If you have tort reform and those lawsuits become way harder to file and the damages are strictly limited, then it's one fewer, it's one less incentive corporations have to do anything besides pursue maximum profit, no matter what it has to do. And if that means killing 500 people a year because 
um, maintaining high health standards for its meat production is too expensive, then that's just what it'll do. It's really a terrible problem because tort reform is really frightening, and yet the current system, so many people abuse it, and there are so many lawsuits over frivolous things um, that it's close to being paralyzing, and it also adds tremendously to the cost of everything here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I, I'm not a politician who has to decide. In uh, Neil Stevenson's book, Cryptonomicon, there was uh, uh, an example that was particularly uh, disturbing for me, because he says there that uh, they stopped publishing uh, textbooks, uh, like instruction books, for deep water diving. Because uh, if somebody uh, dies according to this book and uh, dies, that can happen. If you dive deep enough, it can happen anyway. Everything can happen to you. Then uh, the publisher will be sued. So they just uh, stopped publishing these instruction books completely. Well, it's true. It happens sometimes. And uh, people have to. People who want to do it, who want to uh, make this deep water diving, they have to look for these books in some uh, second-hand bookshops. Let, let me gi- let me give you another example. I basically just gave you an argument against tort reform. However terrible those examples, like Stevenson's example, mm-hmm. um, are, I would argue that it is politically. It would be politically too expensive. Mm-hmm to get rid of the current lawsuit culture. Here's another example. We have, we have the Bill of Rights in America and we have freedom of expression. One result of this is that por- certain kinds of pornography are now put out um, both on video and on the internet that are really just disgusting, mm-hmm. that cater only to people who have problems and aggressions. And it's not, it's demeaning. It's, it makes you embarrassed to live in a culture where this sort of shit gets put out. But it would be too expensive to outlaw it because in order to outlaw that pornography, you would have to so undercut the First Amendment that certain kinds of protected free speech that we really do value and really do need in America could also be threatened. So this is one of the things that just drives, drives a kind of literate person crazy in America right now is that we're in these situations that are truly terrible. But... The remedies for them, and many on the right want these sort of simple draconian remedies, that the remedies are simply too expensive in terms of political liberty and any kind of moral robustness for the culture. I would much rather have the problem of little kids able to see Internet porn than I want George W. Bush deciding what is decent to broadcast and what isn't. But uh, back to this uh, court system, do you think there is no way out? Do you think that it's like a trap that doesn't have any door, also no exit? Because if, uh, well, it seems to me that situation is uh, bad enough, but uh, if we can change it, what will await us? What expects us? My guess is that the way the way these things get corrected is Um, through a system of kind of extremes and cycles. It may very well be that in, say, the world of healthcare and malpractice lawsuits, things may reach such a point that we as a culture decide that it's more important to have affordable healthcare, possibly national healthcare, than it is for people to be able to sue doctors who, through negligence, hurt them terribly. And we may try it that way for a while until there are a hundred or a thousand cases 
of negligence and ha- harm so awful that we as a country decide once again <laughs> that we need, you, you know what I mean? And yeah. this, may, this may go back and forth and play out, um, play out over, over decades so, or, or even kind of a century. So you think that basically the system is good but it just goes in some sinusoid movement? I don't know whether the system is good or not. As an American, it's part of the same syndrome that your director friend was talking about. I detest the current litigational system, but I'm paralyzed. In, in terms of wanting tort reform, I'm paralyzed by anticipating what the disadvantages would be if we allowed corporations and rich people to establish very, very strict mm-hmm. criteria for lawsuits they would find a way to abuse that system the same way some ordinary citizens abuse the litigation system, and I'm, I'm worried that things actually may be worse overall. Well, when I thought about it, the only idea I could came to was that there should be uh, introduced a system when, when you sue somebody, uh, then if you lose this case, you should be struck well, in many money value as bad as you wanted to strike this person or corporation. I don't mean the absolute values, like if you yep. make like $100,000 a year and you sue some corporation for $1 billion, then you s- your penalties if you lost uh, like 50000 something like that. This is what's interesting. That sounds really good, mm-hmm. but if you think about it in practice, corporations and medical practices are usually really rich. Mm-hmm. They can afford a hundred lawyers, and in fact, many of these lawsuits are uh, ordinary civilians with good cases actually lose because the lawyers for the corporations can drag the, the case out so long that it becomes so expensive that the person just can't pursue it. So what you're saying, it sounds good in theory, but in practice, large corporations and wealthy medical practices will be able to, to use that to terrorize people who really have been injured out of making any sort of claim. It may, maybe your idea finally would have more advantages than disadvantages, but the problem here is that once things are instituted, you get to see in the media and because we have an open society, you get to see what the actual consequences are and the actual consequences of what you're suggesting could be really, really awful. Mm-hmm. So, you know, basically it just comes down to this is the privilege of living in a more or less open democratic society is it just drives you crazy because everybody can figure out a way to abuse every freedom and yet, and, and the problem becomes how do you close off the possibility of abuse without getting rid of that freedom? Mm-hmm. And you're seeing this especially now with the issue here in America of whether terrorism suspects can be tortured in violation of the Geneva Convention, right? You have, you have people on the right wing who are claiming that the danger to American citizens is so pressing that it outweighs, it outweighs the rights of the accused. And then you have those of us on the left, and I'm afraid I'm someone very much on the left who's saying, you know what, even if you're right, it's too expensive. We cannot do without those protections, because what happens if we get a president even worse than you who wants to do that to his enemies? I, I mean, basically, then you have the gulag, mm-hmm. right? So what do you do? I don't know what you do, yeah. except you fight it out and 
I don't know. Uh, that's uh, that's an example where this democracy just doesn't work because it's, as I understand uh, what they do in this Guantanamo, it's uh, against American laws, but they are doing it anyway. Well, then you get into the muddy issue of the truth is you and I, in healthcare, you and I can have whole arguments about whether there ought to be tort reform. In Washington, D.C. right now, whether there's tort reform really has to do with whether corporate lobbies are more powerful than trial lawyers' lobbies. <laughs> um, in fact, the way these laws get made right now are so corrupt and so influenced by large business contributions that you and I can have our quaint little arguments about what's right, but in terms of the actual laws that get implemented, it's completely about economic interests. It's all about the briefcase full of money right yeah. now. So... It's, it's really scary to see, uh, like, to see uh, selective usage of democracy. Yeah, it's really scary, and it's got to be really odious to people in other countries to hear our leaders beat their breasts about our being, you know, democracy and the and the harbingers of freedom, while systematically <laughs> um, stripping away the freedoms and the liberties that are really the only thing that's made this country special and interesting over the last couple centuries. This is the great war in America right now, and it's the really scary thing. Um, and those, those of us who do not agree with the current administration are fighting very, very hard, but the current administration has very, very good advertisers on its side, and there are there are voters in America who seem ready to sign a liberties for their own physical safety. Mm -hmm. And if that happens, we deserve whatever we get. Well, now I will have to ask some uh, more stupid questions and uh, like some questions that uh, I'm sure you were asked like thousands of times, but I will have to do it in anyway. So, Let me just ask you very quickly, what time is it right now? Do you know? It's uh, 8.30. Do you have some like 10 more minutes? I don't need more than 10 or 15 minutes. Maximum. Okay, fine. You wrote this infinite jest in 1996, so 10 years ago. And after that, you didn't uh, write any other novel, just essays or stories. Yes. So do you feel that it's uh, over for you uh, with big novels, or okay. there is some other reason? Or it's more interesting for you to make stories now? I think um, there are writers in America who consider themselves only novelists. I don't, I do all kinds of different things. I've, I will probably at some point finish, finish a novel, whether it will be good enough to publish, I don't know. I tend to start three or four things for every one thing that gets finished. I was trained mainly as a short story writer, and that's, that's how I started writing. But I, I've also become very interested in nonfiction just because I got a couple of magazine jobs when I was really poor and needed the money, and it turned out that nonfiction was much more interesting than I thought it was. So I am, as American writers go, I'm, I'm very eclectic. I haven't made any decisions about one kind of genre or another. I know I will never probably, I love to read poetry, I'll probably never write it because I just have no talent for it. But other than that, I probably want to try everything. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's that's a true answer. It's probably not very interesting. I don't have any views about mm -hmm. the novel versus the short story or or anything like that. But now you just don't feel like writing another novel. It's uh, stories and essays are uh, more well, interesting for you now. You make it sound like writing a novel is a matter of sitting down for an afternoon. I I've, <laughs> I have for the past five or six years at times made starts on things that 
I mean, I don't really understand the term novel, but I guess anything over about 150 pages is a novel. I've done a couple longer things. I just don't like them very much right now, and I don't know whether I will rewrite them. I don't really need the money. I don't. My wife and I live very simply, and we don't have very much money, and so I'm sure I will write more novels. I don't know whether I will publish them or not. I don't. A lot of stuff that I write, I just goes in a in a big box in my office, and no one else ever sees it. Mm-hmm. Your stories uh, are very philosophical and uh, quite political too. So, do you feel big a difference between uh, stories and essays, or they are like mostly the same for you? Well, I don't know that I agree that my fiction is really all that political. I guess. Um, I well, it's philosophical at least. Maybe um, not as political, but philosophical is for sure. Yeah, I was trained. I mean, I I think I'm. People are often surprised. I think I'm fundamentally fairly traditional, conservative kind of writer. I tend to think of fiction as being mainly about characters and human beings and kind of inner experience. And whereas essays can be much more expository and didactic and and more about you know subjects or ideas if some people read my fiction and see it as fundamentally about philosophical ideas it what it probably means is those are pieces where the characters aren't aren't as alive and as interesting as i want them to be i don't know But well, uh, let's say in the story, uh, the same story, philosophy and the mirror of nature, or in Octet and uh, brief interviews with uh, hideous man, it's uh, well, it's pretty much much reflection on uh, some uh, on court system and was the first one, or in on moral issues in the second one. Okay. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't. You must run across this is um, when you interview writers. It becomes very difficult. Mm-hmm for me to reduce, if I've written a story that I like enough to try to publish it, it usually for me is about so many different things that whenever somebody says, oh, your story's about X or Y or Z, I'll just sort of smile, but but inside it, that seems very reductive to me. But I'm sure you're aware authors are the worst people to ask about their stories because they end up being, for the authors, about things that are that are often very remote from what the reader's experience of them is. Mm-hmm. Usually once I've finished something, I just don't think about it anymore. Mm-hmm. What do you'll notice I'm mm-hmm. not very good at these sorts of questions. I just, I don't know. Like like everybody. Yeah, okay. Well, it's not, not you, not that you answer as the same things that everybody answer, but like, I think nobody is good at this kind of question. I just have to ask them. Oh no, it's fine. Will you tell me very quickly, mm-hmm. Ronnie didn't mention very much about about you, you're in Prague, but the, but your show is broadcast in, in Russia? Is yeah, it's uh, Radio Free Europe. It's a radio station that is financed by, uh, not but by American government, but by American taxpayers. It was created yeah. in times of Cold War. Yeah. And it broadcasts in Russia. It's not, well, I, I cannot say that it's... Uh, oh, I know what AFE uh-huh. is. Yeah, I, did, I didn't, see, Bonnie didn't tell me you were part of... Um, uh-huh part of Radio Free Europe. I'm not okay. uh, I'm not a part of Radio Free Europe, but I'm making this program for them. I see. For their culture block. And the uh, headquarters and the main studios are in Prague. And oh. I live in Prague, and uh, I'm working as a Central European correspondent for a number of Moscow magazines and newspapers, and I'm making these programs for Radio Free Europe as well. 
Why is your English so good? Oh, I don't think it's so good, but well, I, I don't did, know. Did you did you live in England or America for a while? No, I never did. I I just read a lot. I see. Your accent is good. Your syntax is outstanding. Um, well, I thank you very much. I like to, uh, I like to hear it, but <laughs> I don't think it's it's not as good as I'd like to. Well, I mean, considering that in Russian I can say you know it's a koshka. Um, but you, you for, for sure you can speak French, for example, or something else. I can read French quite yeah. well. Speaking it, someone has to speak very slowly because I just haven't been around French speakers very much. But mm-hmm. I actually took, I tried to take a semester of Russian in school, and it I had no talent for it. it it's it very the difficult. Hardest language I've ever tried to. Uh, it's very difficult language. I think the more difficult is only some Hungarian or Finnish. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I won't bother you anymore. Go, <laughs> go, go ahead and ask your question. Uh, what do you think of modern stay in a, a state of American literature? Oh. <laughs> um, Sorry. Somebody asked me this a couple weeks ago. I think the truth is that it's a very exciting period, but it's one that probably people in other countries. Um, won't have as much access to because 30 or 40 years ago, American literature mainly existed in 10 or a dozen giant literary figures in America, and there are now more like probably one or two hundred literary figures, all of whom are all of whom are quite good and quite interesting, but none none really of the stature um, and international reputation of say Saul Bellow. Or a you know a William Faulkner or an Ernest Hemingway. Um, Maybe so it's just a matter of time. Possibly, but I also think that for reasons that are extremely complicated in terms of culture and media. I mean, I'm now 44, so I'm sort of halfway between a young writer and an older writer. Starting with my generation, generations are much more diffuse, um, and they're much more difficult to characterize or capture. Um, to have two or three voices of a generation becomes more and more difficult um, and probably will be done more by certain classic television shows or movies than writers. Writers in America are much more on the cultural margins than they used to be, and that that's very exciting in terms of sort of freedom and ability to experiment, but it also means that there's much less... Uh, cohesion and unity and it would be very difficult for somebody in another country unless they just made a full-time business of it to even keep up with where american literature is right now and, uh do you read uh, modern russian literature except for some of the stories in victor palevin's now his collection werewolves of mm-hmm. mid, mid russia something like that that should be translated yeah other than that, very little. I, except for knowing a little about the Russian absurdists of the 20s, like Daniel Karms and stuff like that, mm-hmm. I'm mostly Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and Chekhov and Pushkin and mm-hmm. Gogol and all the uh, really writers who are probably so familiar to Russians that they're just not all that interesting anymore. No, not as I will. We study them in school, so like nobody yeah. wants to hear about them anymore. Like for 10 or 20 years after school, you have vaccination against Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. Well, like, I, like lay, later you go back to them, but... Yeah, I never got to read any of them in school. I started reading them in mm-hmm. my 30s, and 
even though I, I think there are terrible translation problems, I can tell that Dostoevsky in Russian is much, probably kind of more beautiful than in English. Um, they're, to me, probably better than anything anything in English except maybe certain Henry James. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but this is no news to anybody because everybody knows they're giants. But I came to them somewhat late. Uh, what do you think of Harms and uh, Pelevin? I'm sorry? Uh, what do you think of... Uh, you mentioned Harms, yeah? Daniel Harms. Oh, I, I think this stuff's fascinating. I, I read the Russian absurdists kind of the same way that I, I read um, the fragments of, of uh, Kafka or, or Bruno Schultz or, or even mm-hmm. some of Kierkegaard's apothems. They seem to me much more... They're much more cerebral and intellectual than the kinds of literature that most Americans do right now. But I think they're wonderful. There's one calm story that I teach every semester. What, 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 the man with red hair, where there once was a man with red hair who actually didn't have red hair mm-hmm. and actually didn't have arms or legs, right? And it all ends up, it all ends up, so we better not talk about him anymore, where <laughs> the, story, the story literally deconstructs, almost right out of a Derridian manual, deconstructs a character, what, 80 years before Foucault and Derrida even started thinking about what deconstruction was. No, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. The thing of it is, is all I can read is what's available in translation because I have no Russian, so I'm very limited in terms of... It's, as with mo- it's the same with German literature. I'm just at the mercy of translators. I don't like it very much. But I think Harms is not uh, particularly uh, hard to translate. So I oh, think probably it, not. I think but I don't think I doubt. I doubt all of Harms has been translated. No, I, have, I doubt so. I have one anthology of Russian absurdism that was put out by a university press. This is the problem in America: is there's there's no real samizdat, so one is limited to one is limited to works of literature that some publisher has decided it's profitable <laughs> to publish. Mm-hmm. So that's our real form of censorship here. Uh, we have about the same now in Russia in the last decade. Uh, what do you think about Pelevin? I've read only two stories. From what I understand, he's on my list, along with uh, a couple of Germans, for the next non-American writer I want to learn more about, because everything I've read and heard about him, is, it sounds as if he's very exciting. Is he sort of the best known of the contemporary Russians? Or is yeah, he he's, uh, he's certainly the most uh, popular of not pulp writers. Uh-huh. What are pulp writers like in Russia today? Well, it's so... Crime and mystery. Yeah, yeah, cro- uh, not mystery. Mystery is not popular. Crime, mostly crime. Uh-huh. Who are some of the, you know, like America's got Stephen King and Tom Clancy and those guys. Who are some uh, of We the don't have anybody like this. We have, uh, like, detectives uh, with, uh, like, poli- police novels. It's mostly women who wrote this. Uh, I mean, the most popular ones with uh, the... Biggest outcome was Marinina Dashkova and some third girl, I don't remember her name. Are any of these available in, in English? I think some Marinina could be available in English. And of genre uh, pros of uh, this, like, uh, high-brow detectives, uh, high-level, like, high-level pulp, pulp fiction, I don't know. It's not, uh-huh. not pulp fiction anymore, like, on some, something, but mass fiction, but not pulp fiction. It's uh, Akunin the most popular one. Is that A-K-U-N-I-N? Yeah, Winter Queen, I think. He was translated in English. 
Acunian. Yeah, I've heard that name vaguely. But it's about this uh, guy from uh, 19th century, 19th century Russian detective, Fandorin. Huh. Huh. They're good, good books. Uh, what were the Pelevin stories you read? I don't remember. It was, I was sitting in on somebody's class and somebody mm. had, uh, the teacher had Xeroxed two stories from, an from a collection of his that mm. had the term werewolves in the title, werewolves mm. of werewolves of something yeah i, I, I know what you're talking about i, I don't remember i don't i don't remember the titles i remember liking them very much but these were in the midst of we had 10 stories a week to read mm -hmm. all i know is that i wrote his name down and he's slowly rising to the top of the list of people mm -hmm. that the problem in america for us is that there's so much to read mm -hmm. and people are always mentioning or showing you things that are fantastic and then you want to go read it all, but you've also then got four or five other things to read. And mm -hmm. it's the big reason why I don't own a television is that is that there's so much stuff I want to read that if I sit down in front of the television, I will waste three or four hours. And mm -hmm. anyway, so the the basic answer there is I'm I'm appallingly ignorant mm -hmm. of the state of Russian literature right now. Of Pelevin, uh, if you someday if you decide to read him, uh, I could recommend. I'm not quite sure I could recommend it because I think his best book is uh, this uh, Clay Machine Gun, Buddha Finger or Clay Machine Gun. It were uh, the translations of it. It's a play. It's no, it's not a play. It's a novel. It's in Russian. It's Chepayev and Emptiness, and it was translated in English uh, as uh, Clay Machine Gun. Or Buddha Little Finger, two different translations. You're saying you're saying clay machine gun? Clay, yeah, clay machine gun. I will uh I was gonna read short stories, but I will that'll be the first Pelevin I read then. I will trust your recommendation. It's very good. Uh, I it's certainly his best, but well I cannot say with uh that I uh, really recommend it because of one thing, because it's very deeply rooted in a Russian uh, modern popular culture, in Russian jokes and in Russian, uh, like, some classic Russian movies. And I think, like, about third of the appeal is when you recognize all the things. Well, I cannot, cannot uh, say if it's as good if you don't know it. This is the same reason why I'm, I was somewhat surprised when someone like you wanted to talk to me, my stuff is so American and so idiomatic and so, I guess maybe American popular culture is known a little better, but it just seems to me that nobody who isn't in America over the last 20 years would, would find anything enjoyable in any of my stuff. I really liked your stories and the novel. Really? Yeah, really. I, I cannot say uh, that I, uh, I didn't finish the novel yet, I just two thirds uh, through it, but I, I will finish it for sure. Um, well, that, that's nice to hear. Again, you know, part of it too is, mm -hmm. is um, for instance, the Pelevin, my situation, it won't be whether I just like Pelevin, it will also be whether I like the translator. Mm -hmm. For instance, I know there are supposed to be wonderful new translations of both Kafka mm -hmm. and Dostoevsky, but I prefer the Constance Garnet translations of Dostoevsky from the 19th century, which everybody says are, are, are not good, but I just like, I like the English prose much better than I like these new translations. Mm -hmm. So it, it ends up being, there will, there will be certain stuff in foreign languages that I won't finish, not because I don't like the author, mm -hmm. but because I just find the translation so frustrating. Mm -hmm. so, anyway, I'm sure that's a very common problem. Mm -hmm. uh, well, in Russian, uh, they do not publish, in my opinion, so many good books now, so yeah, I well, actually read in more in English than in Russian these days. But Well, you could make the same argument about uh, in English, too, or at least that many good books don't get any attention or support, mm -hmm. whereas a lot of ones that 
are just much more, they think will sell more, is what they spend all their time getting readers to know about. Anyway, I'm probably going to have to leave here mm -hmm. in a couple of minutes. Are, uh, uh, thank you very much this, for the interview. Is, is this going to be enough for you to edit down and make some sort of program out of it? Yeah, absolutely. It will be nice. There are tons of questions uh, I would like to ask you, but I have a lot of material right now. On. I wish you luck with your program. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Goodbye.